0: This is the Slow Exposure podcast hosted by me Eliza Edwards, a Berlin-based writer and founder of Slow Exposure, an Instagram account that celebrates emerging talent within the sphere of sustainability. This podcast is a series of conversations with experts from all corners of the fashion industry, conversations between myself and designers, activists, CEOs, and more. The idea started last year in London. I brought my microphone with me everywhere I went, pressing the red button when we started our conversations. This series is supported by Vessia Collective, the leading global app for pre-loved fashion. Discover a more sustainable, circular way of buying and selling a wide range of premium, designer and luxury pieces from their global community by joining their movement and becoming a fashion activist today. After the British brand Burberry burnt £26.8 million worth of stock in 2017, I thought they were irredeemable. But when I sat down with the Liverpudlian designer Patrick McDowell in his East London home last year, I began to reconsider my position. During an internship at Burberry, he wrote to the then creative director Christopher Bailey to ask if he could use the luxury brand's discarded materials to create upcycled pieces. His imagination when repurposing materials knows no bounds. Whilst poking around Patrick's flat, I found a pair of recycled, jewel-encrusted sneakers he was working on. Patrick has gone on to found a namesake brand that has challenged our preconceptions of what upcycling should look like. Originally, I had planned on the first series of this podcast to only feature women. But after learning about his collection, Firefighting Aunties, I wanted to hear Patrick's story. Patrick's work celebrates the women in his life that have been putting out metaphorical fires since he can remember. Shortly after our conversation, Patrick was nominated for the Stella McCartney Today for Tomorrow Award by Anna Winter. This is our conversation. You grew up in Liverpool and I've read a little bit about Making rucksacks when you were at school and mm. have, using that as a form to express yourself, which I actually really identified with because school uniform is somewhat restrictive.
1: Yeah, I always wanted to be creative and I didn't like things that made me feel like I was being put in a box. Mm. And I think school does that quite a lot to children, so especially British school sadly now at that school a bag is part of the uniform so you wouldn't be able to do this now but I wanted a new school bag and my mum quite rightly wouldn't get me one because I had one that was fine and so I went upstairs and made one out of a pair of jeans and then that kind of the response that that got and people's like reaction to that and disbelief that someone had made something I found really interesting and then kind of did this thing where I'd make a new bag every week for school, which isn't super, probably very sustainable, but it was still all made from waste. And then um, that turned into me kind of making these bags for life, which I started selling. Cause at the time the, they just started being a thing in British supermarkets and they were all really small. I don't know if you remember about 10 or 11 years ago, they were all about like 84 size and you couldn't fit anything in them. So the idea was great, but no one could really use them for shopping because you'd put, like, two bottles of wine in and it's done. So I made these enormous ones out of remnant-printed cotton canvas that had, like, reinforced seams, and the idea was that you could put a family shop in one bag. And they lasted forever, and people still use them now, like, ten years on, because they're, like, super strong, (laughs) Mm. like, indestructible bags.
0: Stepping out of the ordinary is is not always so easy, but that kind of a way to express Mm. to to your friends and family that you were kind of doing something different and wanted to be different.
1: Yeah, I think so. And also because it had a commercial side to it, it kind of validated the creativity in a way because I think a lot of the time people don't respond to being creative. They do respond to something that makes money. So I think a lot of, a lot of people saw that I was really creative, but I also did this stuff that made, made me more money than they were making as a teenager. And that almost validated the fact that it was worthwhile doing it. Which is why I still have an interest in things that have commercial value, because I see how that can really protect creative people.
0: Mm. Yeah, and I guess give it validation and, and support it in a way that meant that maybe your parents, I don't know what their reception was like when you said that you wanted to be a fashion yeah, designer.
1: Yeah. I mean I was really lucky with my mom. always has said, just do what you enjoy the most, which is what I've always done, and it's worked really well for me. So. You know, I think it's really sad when you see parents that force their children to do things they don't want to do because that's not, at the end of the day that's just going to make everyone sad. Mm. So you went straight
0: mm. to St Martin's at the um, age of 18 without a foundation?
1: Yeah.
0: What was that transition like from growing up in Liverpool and having what comes across as quite a nice <clears throat> environment in which to develop your mm. creativity and then you're straight into London? Central Saint Martins, what was that transition like? It was like
1: being a huge whale in a tiny pond, coming a little Mm. (laughs) sardine (laughs) in a big sea. It taught me a lot, but it was really hard, and I think the mental challenges that moving anywhere brings, and moving from that family environment to here at a really young age, and I think that's something no-one really talks about, and it's hard, so that was... The reason a, lot, a big focus of my dissertation in my final year at St. Martin's was actually arguing for the need for transitional courses like foundations.
0: Mm. Your final collection gained sponsorship from the British Fashion Council, Swarovski, Burberry and Oakley. What did that feel like? Because that's relatively unusual.
1: Yeah, the Fashion Council thing was from the hardship fund, so that's something they give to students that show merit or promise that wouldn't be able to afford to do that without their help. Um, and then Burberry and Swarovski was kind of... Burberry actually got first when I was still working there. So I was in my internship year at St Martin's before I did my final collection and I worked at Burberry. Well, initially it was meant to be for three months and ended up becoming a year and was really desperate for fabrics for this. And I noticed how much Burberry was wasting and how much they had like left, left around all the time. At the time it was Christopher Bailey, so I wrote him a letter and made his daughter's two little teddies out of studio waste and just said it would be so helpful to someone like me to be able to use some of the fabric that's just lying around in the studio. And then he actually took that one step further and I was given a book of all of the sampling pieces of fabric they had for the last show and just was told to choose what I wanted. So I went from having... No fabrics having better fabric than everyone else, which is hilarious. <laughs> At somewhere like Saint Martin's.
0: Was that when you first felt the need to work as a sustainable designer, or was that something that had always been part of your um, rhetoric?
1: Yeah, no, I think it it had it has always been part of what I've done because I always used to buy fabric from this shop in Liverpool that sold end of roll and remnant fabric. Um, but I did that because it was cheap and then kind of after being at Burberry for that long and then going back to St Martins and then you had a fashion Sarah Gressy had started a sustainability lecture series which I was also became really interested in and then everything kind of clicked into place and I was like oh oh my god okay so for the past 10 years you've actually been doing this thing that people are now saying is sustainability and you've always worked like this because you needed to because you don't waste stuff when you come from a working class family in Liverpool like you don't like, I remember when I first started making things, and I, it was from, like, Mum's friend's old fabric. Every single scrap that I cut off, Mum was like, you should just keep that just in case. Mm. I mean, literally, like, three millimetre scrap, like, tiny pieces. She was like, I used to keep every. I used to have bags and bags and bags of everything. This is, which, you know, it's, like, it's not actually sustainable either, personally, to, to keep that much stuff. But it was, yeah, it's just how we grew up. Like my grandma is was sixteen when the Second World War started. Like scary, she lived yeah. through all of that and I certainly am not from a wealthy background, but compared to what she grew up in I'm I'm so rich. Mm. <laughs> Anyone is now. She was like twelve of them in a four room house. That generation seemed to have things <clears throat> pretty much sorted out. I think somewhere in the eighties everything just went a bit crazy. <laughs> when grandma was born plastic wasn't a thing. There wasn't any plastic containers or anything when she was born. So in in her lifetime, all this mess has happened. And you think, how did that go so wrong so fast?
0: Mm. Do you think that, because um, sustainability seems to always been an aspect of why you design and how mm. you design. But when I think about sustainability, I don't just think about the environmental aspect, I also think about societal...
1: Social sustainability. Exactly, is yeah. that something that you
0: yeah, it's prominent with you as well.
1: Yeah, I'm really passionate about that because I, I just think you may as well not bother if you can't... If you're only interested in using the right fabric and not the right treatment of people, then I... You know. I'd rather wear something that's like virgin polyester and know that it was made treating those people properly. And it makes you feel amazing as well, like when you wear stuff that you know is made... Like this shirt's from Catherine Hamnett and it's Mm, like the best cotton, the most disabled cotton you can get and I know there's a lot of arguments about not using that but you know and I know that she pays everyone properly and that's great and I feel great wearing it and it's nice, it's a nice shirt anyway Mm, but that all that other stuff makes me feel really good when I put it on in the morning and I'm like oh yeah this is not, Mm. I'm just okay with this. And it was from a sample sale, so it was cheap. <laughs> but that's also
0: the thing about redeveloping a connection between the wearer and the garment. And that's something that I think, as we were talking about, somewhere got lost in recent yeah. years.
1: And I think that also has some, something to do with the school's disconnecting design teaching and, and the craft of making clothes, because that's mm. something they've lost. This is kind of seen as a very separate thing now, like you either design the clothes or you make the clothes and they're not ever seen as as one. Whereas really both sides of that coin need to know each other because it's important to know how to make a building if you're an architect. It's the same with clothes.
0: So you graduated from St Martin's. Where were your collections at at that time? If you could kind of bring the image of it into words, where where were you at mentally and artistically after having graduated? I
1: didn't know what was going to happen, you know, like I didn't... Looking back on it, I think I'd been pretty smart promotionally, promotion-wise, because I'd promoted what I was doing on Instagram before I graduated, so... And then shot my lookbook a week before the graduate show, which no one ever does there. um, Which meant that everyone that had already been interested on Instagram then got a lookbook a week early. And everyone was kind of already on the journey with me. So on the day of the show, when 120 graduates show on the same day, I kind of had a point of difference that people were already familiar with rather than like this vomit of new ideas that no one's got any connection to at all. And for me that re- that's a real shame and it takes away a lot of the storytelling of being a designer so for me I like to, but I was advised against all of this constantly throughout the whole year but turned out to help me out the most.
0: Why do you think that you were advised against it?
1: Because there's a weird obsession with secrecy in fashion. I, I don't understand it really, I don't think anyone you know, sharing things just makes you more better and I don't know why everyone's so obsessed with hiding all their ideas.
0: And so for people who don't understand maybe the fashion industry in the same way that you do and, and maybe who haven't been to a Central Saint Martins graduate show, is it that everyone's sort of waiting to see what comes out? Because there must have been a reason as to why they were saying wait, wait, wait till, till the show. And...
1: It's the best school in the world for yeah. fashion, so people wait, People people look to it for new ideas. I just think it's difficult to you know I don't think I'm I'm the the most radical designer in the world so what, what can I do to make myself stand out then you know and that was make a bit of noise before it happened and it worked for me but that's also the thing a lot of the time with graduates from there is that they're probably more creative than I am and therefore struggle with other parts of of what being a designer today is, which is mainly self PR, and just a wider storytelling around it. Like I'm, I think I'm primarily a storyteller, and then a designer, and the the designs are like the outlet for the story. But I think there's so much more now to running a fashion business than just clothes. People need more than that now, and they expect they expect a, a whole narrative that goes with you. And if that's not authentic, people can feel that. So it has to be like. use eco soap like that's on the sink over there and you use eco dishwasher tablets and you use like a eco perfume eco you know like it it infects your whole life which is great because then you start to rethink everything
0: and i think that authenticity is something that you've you've already said that was always really important to you and also has is really obvious from us from a kind of onlooker that that's something Mm. that is ingrained in your practice and what you do and i and i think I've experienced exactly the same thing as a journalist working in sustainability, then Mm. you have to, I mean, I haven't flown for a long time now, and it's things, and that is hard, it's really difficult.
1: There's lots of things for my business at the moment that I need to fly for, that I need to do to be sustainable for myself as well, (laughs) but then I'm aware of the impact of those flights. Yeah, but I'm, I'm happy to talk about that. Like, I can take you through every piece of my collection and tell you exactly what's not sustainable about every piece. But it's like I said to my friend, I'm really struggling to find a sustainable trim. And he was like, oh, you should try this. And then my other friend was like, oh, you should try this. And because I'd spoken about it, I now have a solution to it. And now I don't have to use polyester trims anymore, which I had been doing. So that's great. But you just need to talk about it.
0: Yeah, and I think there's such a such a weird assumption that we all, or that a lot of people who work in sustainable fashion have it sorted. When... No, none of us do. No, and it's a process.
1: Yeah, and also what I thought was sustainable a year ago isn't necessarily sustainable now, and I hope whatever I'm doing now is seen as old-fashioned in two years as well, because that's how we all grow. Mm-hmm. And I think actually a lot of it is just actually going backwards, like back into, like, the 1920s, and a lot of things that happened then seem to be better than now. Well, Again, like, morally they weren't, because they had kids working in fabric mills, so... See, even that's a contradiction. Yeah. Mm. <laughs>
0: Yeah, but I guess the technology and the way... That, it's really interesting because I think a lot of it for me kind of goes back to social media. And I don't know if, how you find it, but I think the rapidity at which we receive information and, and the pace at which our lives have had to adjust to because mm-hmm. everything's so much quicker has really infiltrated those parts of our lives which actually don't need to be much faster. For example, how we consume clothing and food. Yeah. Yeah.
1: On, the, on the other hand, I had a, I have a very active Instagram with very little clothes like for a whole year i had so much press from a six look collection which is my graduate one like six looks yeah and that was it so you know it's maybe you're right like it's not you don't actually need lots of clothes but maybe you do need lots of content Mm. which is what i found but but you can make lots of content from not very much Um, So I think it's a really good point that you made because actually maybe it is about identifying which bits need to be quicker and which bits don't. And if you have an audience that wants lots of content and you can make that, but you don't need to make new clothes for it.
0: So if you were to describe to anyone listening what... Your that six-piece collection looked like in the flesh? How would you...?
1: The graduate one. Mm-hmm. Based on a climbing trip my dad did some Mont Blanc in the Alps when I was six. Yeah, it was basically about the idea of me at six climbing the mountain with dad and mum in like proper Liverpool glam. So it was mixing like being a child with Liverpool glamour and that very like masculine side to him and mixing all that together to make a collection.
0: What is Liverpool glam for those of us that didn't grow up in Liverpool?
1: The shortest dress or the longest dress, the highest heel, the most glittery shoe, like the biggest hair, the most makeup, longest eyelashes. It's about like wearing your wealth and being a peacock for Saturday night or Friday night and spending days planning what you're going to look like because you're going to show everyone how amazing you are.
0: The Slow Exposure Podcast is supported by Vestia Collective, the leading global app for pre-love fashion. It's that time of year when we start making resolutions and one of mine is to sell what I no longer wear. For the past year I had a beautiful Jill Zander coat hanging in my flat. I finally managed to admit to myself that it's just too long for my modest height of five foot five. I sold it on Vestiaire in a day. I know I'm supposed to say that, but it really is that easy. I'm sure, like me, you have plenty of items in your wardrobe that you haven't touched in years. Selling old favourites on Vestiaire Collective will help keep your pieces in circulation and also earn you some money too. Not a bad way to start off the new year. Bestia Collective are offering Slow Exposure listeners 25 euros, or equivalent in local currency, of their first purchase until the end of January. Use Slow Exposure 21 all uppercase and download the app for more details. It's funny when you Google your name and then you go on Google Images, you mm. get like 100 pictures of Rita Aura. Yeah. She wore one of your pieces and mm. you said that that was one of the moments where you were like, okay, this is
1: Going this is somewhere, yeah. yeah. Well, that was very soon after I graduated. Karen Clarkson who's our stylist really supportive for really new designers which is a, a you know people say new designers but they actually mean people that have been running for five years like new designers are people that have just graduated and that's the people that need a lot of help actually and no help really exists so it's great when someone like Karen comes along a month after you graduate and says we're going to pay you to make Rita this jumpsuit because that Makes you think that it's okay to be paid, and then you don't do anything after that that's not paid, because you know you would have done it for free probably. Mm. But yeah, so that was really amazing, and then shortly after that, I was on the cover of the September issue of L U K. Um, that came out in August.
0: That must have been a surreal moment.
1: Yeah, it was. It was. So and then it was kind of like okay, things are starting to happen now, and then. I met Claire Press following month at her book launch in London. She's a sustainability editor-at-large at Australian Vogue, but she's from Leeds. And she'd spoken to Evelyn Mora, who's the founder of Helsinki Fashion Week, which is a sustainable-only fashion week, and said that you should give this guy a show. And then Evelyn called me and said, we'd like to give you this show for free in July. And that was in February when she called. So then I made another collection. <laughs>
0: And what was the story behind that
1: one? Um, it was called Firefighting Anties, which was looking at my dad who was a fireman, and my mum and her five sisters. And like realising the fact that women put out fires in families every day and dad was like putting fires out physically. So I wanted to like flip it and just celebrate the fact that they've always held us all together like glue by making like a, like a Liverpool Glam Fire Brigade for them, <laughs> so yeah. Similar, but it's really nice working like that, just like make stories up about your family. <laughs> mm. Yeah, and no, no Pinterest or like Google Images or any of that, so it's really nice.
0: Yeah, and it's kind of, I mean it speaks to me in a kind of sense of timelessness because it's coming mm. from the
1: heart. Yeah, and also it's like, if someone's like, oh, you've... I mean, it's never happened yet, but if someone was to say, well, you've copied this, then it would just be like, well, actually, no. It's cause it's, it's based on this dress my, my like grandma wore in 1972, so sorry if it looks like that too, but that's not what I'm trying to get at. Mum's called it a family heirloom.
0: How does that make you feel? Does that give you... It must give you a certain sense of pressure
1: for the... No, no, not at all. They're not like that. It's just it is what it is. They'd be happy whether it was like a a white t-shirt or a massive dress. Like it's... It's nice not to have that, like, weird parental pressure that a lot of families put on their kids. Like, Mm -hmm. that's never really existed. So everything that I do is is from me, really. You know, like, they're always there to support me, obviously, if I need help, but it's always come from me, so then it's on me. Mm -hmm. You know, there's none of that weird, like, parental blame for stuff which a lot of families have.
0: On your Instagram, it says, Closing that doesn't cost the earth. That's a big problem that I have when interviewing people that work in sustainability, and sustainability designers that the clothing is is very expensive and often just for people who are immensely privileged how was how do you make your pricing accessible and and what were the challenges that you, you were faced with when you're kind of embarking on that what is actually quite a difficult
1: yeah. journey um, well they are really expensive like if you buy them they're, they're a lot like I can't afford my own clothes basically and not many people can but you can rent them and that's when it becomes accessible because rental fees are really low so you can rent things you don't have to wash them they get washed for you and it's all like super easy there's Hire Studio which is like a boutique rental company in London that I work with they've got some pieces and then other pieces you can rent direct from me and then if there's something that you feel like you really really love you can save to buy it or if you're lucky enough to have lots of spare cash you could buy it straight away but I think that's a better way to do it because they're expensive because they're made by a really good seamstress in London that's paid like way over the living wage. Like way over like double and she does a good job. She she works at McQueen normally making like private orders for them. So like that's the quality you're getting. So, you know, they're all made on a really small scale and not in a factory and it's really nice, so I think they should be expensive. But they also have the durability to last, mm. to be rented a lot. So because it's an
0: investment piece or it's something... Well, yeah, because they're made the really
1: well. You can rent them out loads and, like, hundreds of times and they're still fine.
0: How are you feeling about sustainability in London at the moment? Because it, it sort of feels like a, a, I mean, it is a hype thing at the moment. And it's very... Mm. It's a trend is a word that I use very cautiously, but it is. Yeah. Has become a lot more part of the conversation in recent years mm. what's your reaction to that?
1: I'm glad the more people are talking about it I say that's good but you know it's difficult for something to remain a trend when like there's fires all over the world and like Venice is underwater and north of England's underwater and I think when you know, things are starting to happen now that are really making people wake up and they're like okay like my neighbor's house is burned down in Los Angeles like this shit's real. <laughs> and so, but then it's also like anything in any any cultural movement always is first seen as weird and then it's seen as artistic and then it's seen as fashionable, which is where we are now. And then it's seen as mainstream and then it becomes normal and then it's just part of everyday society and no one talks about it anymore. But like anything, like when you're a child and you play it being an adult, when you play shop, People have to play sustainability before they actually can be sustainable because they need to. We all have to practice, and that's people. That's what people are doing now. They're playing at it, and eventually it will become normal. But I don't know if that will be happening in time to stop the tipping point.
0: Oh, it's a bit scary. It's a bit heavy for anyone. <laughs> who else are you looking to at the moment in the industry? That who's inspiring you? Who can. If someone's listening uh, and wants to get more sustainable fashion, who should
1: Phoebe they? Phoebe English is doing great things. She's, I don't know if there's a Vogue article that Sarah Mo wrote about the WhatsApp group that Phoebe started. It's called Fashion on Earth on WhatsApp that we're all part of. And every time anyone needs a hand with anything, you can just ask a question in there and then people will help if they know something can help you out. And that's really, really, really nice because that's also the great thing about being in this new uh, part of the fashion industry is that people actually want to help each other and they're not so secretive and they share information and they realise that sharing brings lots of returns back to you Mm -hmm. and that's a big part of sustainability is sharing and getting knowledge from other people if you're locking yourself in your ivory tower then you're quite far away from what true sustainability is
0: yeah your finger leaves the pulse I think as well
1: well, yeah, because you've, not, you've cut all the pulses off. Mm. But you've, you've locked yourself in a room, which is what some designers do. Like They don't let anyone see, even their own designers see, what their real vision is. And you're like, how's anyone going to get on board with this story if you've not even told your heads of department what the story is? So much of this stuff for me is complete common sense. And so I get so confused why still people think this is some like miracle way of working. Like it's literally common sense. There's no brains behind it. I'm not a scientist. I'm not, all I all I am is I just have a lot of common sense and I can make a nice shape with when I'm pattern cutting. But it's really simple. It's frustrating that it's so overcomplicated because that's basically the, the main issue with fashion is that it's just become too overcomplicated and it's become boring. Which is ne- never the point I think with clothes.
0: Yeah, it's very difficult, and I think also with with something like environmentalism, which a lot of people think is a bit dry or.
1: Well, it can be dry, which yeah. is why you need to make it fun. Like my clothes don't look like they're saving the planet. Do you know what I mean? Like they're just they're just nice clothes and they're nice colours, and then they're also not like adding to the waste issue. So, but that's also common sense because you just want to look good, don't you? Like you want to look nice, and you want it to be kind of fun also for a good cause and I guess that's also why you invest, you know, you invest in a sustainable brand because they've done the work for you so you pay to be part of their story because maybe you can't be bothered doing it that day so you're paying someone else to do it. Does that make sense? Mm. Like me, I've bought into Catherine's story with this shirt because Maybe I didn't want to make myself another shirt because that's actually a lot of emotional investment for me. Whereas this one, I could just walk into that sample sale and buy it and now I'm part of her story. And there's a lot of people around the world doing lots of work. So if you don't want to do the work yourself, you can just change your buying habits and you can actually do quite a lot of good through that.
0: And I think the shift, uh, as we are talking about habit, is, is tricky. I mean, mm. I definitely wasn't as progressive in my thinking five years ago as I am today. Mm. Um... And I guess that's why we're sitting here now, is to kind of develop our understanding of of what's good and what's right and mm. do that in a way that's actually really fun. And, you know, your mm. big, beautiful yellow sleeves that I saw are exciting and, yeah. and the least dry thing ever. Yeah,
1: but it needs to be that, because people need to... Like, I still think the least sustainable thing you can make is something no one wants to wear. I think, you know, even if it's made from, like, organic cotton or hemp whatever whatever and it's made everyone's paid a living wage and and it's all like happy and made with wind power and everything if if no one actually wants to wear that thing then you just made more waste so you didn't do your job properly and you know you can't over overstep the fact that you need to be a designer first and foremost you need to be able to cut a nice shape and then you also need to have sustainability as part of your business model but it's not an excuse for a bad design or a bad concept
0: thank you for listening to my conversation with patrick you can find him on instagram at patrick underscore mcdowell and i'm at the slow exposure remember tap subscribe tell your mates and i've been told reviews are gold dust i'll see you next monday for the next episode in the first series of the slow exposure podcast